Section 61 of The History of Prostitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ramon Escamilla. The History of Prostitution by William Sanger. Section 61. Chapter 37. New York. Remedial Measures. Part 3. Public decency would be served in another manner. It is a most humiliating admission that New York is fast approaching to the condition of certain foreign cities, where unnatural practices first led to the contemplation and adoption of these or similar remedial measures. In our case, they are known to the authorities, but are so revolting that they never have been, and never can be, made public. Of course, such an organization would take special cognizance of these detestable abominations. Objections to the expense of the plan may be raised, and it cannot be denied that it will be large, yet it will be a matter of economy to incur it, even at the risk of increasing taxation, which it will not do. Recollect that every year, as the virulence of syphilis was abated, the cause of the expense would diminish, and that, in a direct ratio to the energy displayed in the examination, would be the progressive reduction of expenditure. It has already been indicated how some of the inmates of a syphilitic hospital, from whom hitherto nothing has been received, could be made to contribute their quota of the cost. Now the public bear all the expenses, either as assessments or as private payments in individual attacks. The magnitude of the latter item has been already estimated, and were it possible to calculate in addition the value of lost time, the injury to business, and the deterioration of the Constitution, the total in one year would be far more than sufficient to carry out the whole of this plan for double the time. It would also be economy to incur the outlay on account of the benefits to succeeding generations. Syphilis is not confined in its effects to the lifetime of the men or women who contract it, but is entailed on their descendants. These, provided they survive its baneful effects during infancy, are mentally and physically unfitted for business or the active pursuits of life, and consequently are frequently indebted for the means of sustenance to their friends or to public institutions. If the liability to that disease among parents can be removed, no fears need be entertained about their children. We are not so sanguine as to imagine that all the good efforts above enumerated could be accomplished instanter. It would be a work of time, but the sooner it is commenced, the better for all the interests involved. Many persons will say, Oh, these evils do not concern us. These diseases will never injure us or ours. Why should we trouble ourselves and give our money, time, and attention to such matters? Stop, reader. While human passion exists, and while the means of gratifying it can be obtained, you and yours can and will nay, do now suffer from it, directly or indirectly. The first question for any citizen to ask himself is, can prostitution be abolished? Can it be crushed out? If this be answered in the negative, as it must be, then the next question brings him to the point sought to be attained in these pages, namely, the means that shall be taken to circumscribe and diminish its consequent diseases and evils. This question has latterly been attracting some attention in England, and plans to mitigate the evil have been publicly discussed. The chief grounds of complaint, 
or at least those brought most prominently forward, were the assembling of prostitutes in the streets, the annoyance they caused to passengers, and the disorderly character of night-houses. This term is applied in London to those public-houses, supper-rooms, wine-and-cigar saloons, etc., which are situated near the theatres and places of public entertainment, and, being permitted to remain open all night, become resorts for prostitutes. A public meeting for consultation upon these evils was held in London in January last, 1858, and the remarks made by some of the speakers are so much in accordance with the general tenor of this work as to be worth extracting. In justice to the writer, it must be premised that the preceding part of this chapter was penned twelve months before the report of this meeting was made public. The chairman observed, quote, that he was glad to see so general an interest elicited on this subject, and that he hoped it would lead to some practical result. It would, in fact, be impossible to aggravate the evil, for neither in Paris, Berlin, New York, nor even in the cities of Asia was there such a public exhibition of profligacy. The following resolutions were submitted and adopted. Quote, Resolved that a deputation do wait as early as possible upon Sir George Grey for the purpose of most respectfully but earnestly representing to Her Majesty's Government the necessity of effectual measures being taken to put down the open exhibition of street prostitution, which in various parts of the metropolis, particularly in the important thoroughfares of the Haymarket, Coventry Street, Regent Street, Portland Place, and other adjacent localities, is carried on with a disregard of public decency, and to an extent tolerated in no other capital or city of the civilized world. That such deputation be instructed to urge upon Her Majesty's government the following measures, whereby it is believed that the evil complained of may be effectually controlled. Firstly, the enforcement upon a systematic plan and by means of a department of the police specially appointed and instructed for that purpose, of the provisions of the second and third of Victoria, Capitulus 47, in reference to street prostitution, which provisions have in certain localities been heretofore carried out with the best effect, and in others have been ineffectual only because acted upon partially, and not upon any uniform system. And secondly, the passing an act for licensing and placing under proper regulations, as to supervision and hours of closing, all houses of entertainment, or for the supply of refreshments, intended to be open to the public after a certain fixed hour, it being a matter of public notoriety that the houses of this description, popularly known as night-houses, have, by becoming the places of resort of crowds of prostitutes, and other idle and disorderly persons at all hours of the night, greatly contributed to the present disgraceful exhibition of street prostitution that the attention of the government be also directed to the number of foreign prostitutes systematically imported into this country, and to the means of controlling this evil. The substance of one of the addresses made on the subject was as follows. The speaker, quote, begged to remind the meeting that a change had already been effected through the action of the police in the aspect of the Haymarket and Regent Street, heretofore so much complained of. The sense that the public eye was upon their class had caused a corresponding amendment in the dress and demeanor of the females frequenting those streets, and the objects of this association were, so far, in good train. Strongly oppressive, or, as some delicately said, repressive measures, could only be carried out by an extent of police interference inconsistent with the prejudices of English people, 
who are indisposed to deny a large extent of personal freedom to persons of even the most disorderly classes, who had not absolutely forfeited their civil rights. If the association went the length of advocating that the act of prostitution should involve such forfeiture, and the entire riddance of London streets from the presence of prostitutes, they would soon find their hands over full. Unless they thought it possible to exterminate the vice altogether, they would find that its wholesale clearance from the streets would necessitate registration, licensing, and confinement in certain authorized quarters or streets, as prevailed abroad. But such restrictions would entail a more ample recognition and legalization than had hitherto obtained, and so ample indeed as to be very distasteful to what was called the religious public. It would be obviously unjust to exempt from pressure the ladylike prosperous harlot, while a miserable vulgar painted outcast was consignable, because she stood out from the picture somewhat broadly, to the police cell and the bridewell. The meeting must be aware that there was already abroad among the lower half-million of Londoners an impression that the police was already strict enough, and that this opinion was shared by numbers of intelligent men, neither paupers nor criminals. They must remember that many a gentleman of character had passed a night in a police cell for interfering in the defense of prostitutes against the police. And this sentiment would deepen very dangerously if the police pressure were put on double, or, as some would have it, tenfold. The very policemen, too, men sprung from the same class of society as those female offenders, were as likely as anyone else to be faint-hearted in the work of relieving the eyes and ears of gentility from the presence of those whose situation they were not slow to trace to the schemes and desires of the genteel class. He did not think that the power of discrimination could be safely entrusted to the ill-paid constables of the Metropolitan Police, and the association of certain ratepayers with the police as witnesses, as hinted at by one of the delegates, would soon, if established, fall into desuetude. With the view of checking the evil in a satisfactory manner, he would recommend the institution of a special service of street orderlies or regulators in uniform, a well-paid, superior, temperate, and discreet class of men, if possible, whose function should be to observe, not to spy upon, all prostitutes especially those of the street-walking order, and whose circulation, as opposed to loitering and haunting particular spots, they should insist upon. They should work not by threats, but by entreaty, advice, suggestion, but in the case of contumacy, should have the right to call in the regular force. He believed that the right of entry and inspection of all places of ill fame should be vested in the Home Secretary and his delegates, and this would be attained least oppressively, by a proper system of licensing. Forced concentration would not be tolerated here, but concentration was valuable, as bringing immorality under more control. Parochial crusades, though prima facie a public blessing, had often the effect of spreading corruption. It was recollected at Cambridge that when a certain proctor made very frequent descents upon the hamlet of Barnwell, where much of the parasitical vices of that university had taken root, the people in question, far from cure or conversion, merely extended their radius into more rural villages. These were so soon corrupted that representations were addressed to the university by the parochial clergy, praying that the plague of Barnwell should be confined to its old bounds, and not let loose upon their simpler parishes. It was notorious that the same kind of thing followed on a very large scale the expulsion of prostitutes from Brussels, 
and it could not be supposed that the attempt to strangle the growth of immorality by broadcasting its seeds, which was found impracticable under the powerful discipline of the English university and the Belgian capital, could answer among this enormous, and when roused, unmanageable population. The evicted of Norton Street, in the parish of All Souls, had settled quietly down in the next parish. Incompressible as water, the vice had but shifted its ground, and from a really moral point of view, more harm than good had accrued from the change. These remarks do not call for any amplification. A few days after the meeting, a leading article appeared in the London Times. It must be remembered that for many years the settled policy of the conductors of that journal has been to make it rather the exponent than the leader of public opinion, and the importance generally attached to it arises from a knowledge of this fact. We give the article almost entire. Quote, there is a very disagreeable subject which we are compelled to bring, although most reluctantly, before the notice of the public, because it has become necessary to bring public opinion to bear upon it. Many clergymen and gentlemen are now associating themselves together for the purpose of dealing in some degree with the notorious evil of street prostitution. It is our earnest desire to give them all the support in our power, so long as they confine themselves to reasonable measures of discouragement and repression. Let us not nourish any visionary expectations. It would be simply idle to suppose that the evil against which we are now directing our efforts can be put down by the strong hand of power. It is with moral as with physical disease. There is no use in looking for an entirely satisfactory result from the treatment of symptoms. There may be alleviation, there may be diminution of the disorder, but there will be no perfect cure. Whatever tends to raise the standard of public morality will also tend to diminish prostitution. In such a case, we are dealing with two parties, the tempter, let us say, and the tempted, with the man and with the woman. It is probably with the first of the two that we should principally concern ourselves if we would bring about any serious result. It is on the sacred action of family life, with the thousand influences it brings to bear upon the minds and conduct of men, that we must chiefly depend if we would see any notable diminution in the numbers of those unfortunate creatures who now parade our streets. Let it be once understood that even among a man's fellows and associates immorality is a thing to be ashamed of, and at least we should get rid of the contagion of vice. Time was, and the time is not a very remote one, when a British gentleman, we speak of all three home divisions of the empire, would nightly stagger or be carried up to his bed fuddled, if not absolutely drunk. A man who should thus expose himself in our own days would be set down as a beast, and his society would be avoided by all who set store on their own good name. In this respect there has been a palpable improvement in the manners of the age. Surely public opinion can be brought to bear against one vice as well as another. The time may come when a man may shrink from presenting himself in the sacred circle of his mother, his sisters, and his other female relatives, reeking from secret immorality. Conscience can turn on a bull's-eye as well as a policeman, and the culprit may stand self-convicted, although no one has been there to convict him save himself. The influences, however, of which we speak are of slow growth, and cannot much be quickened by the hand of power. It has become necessary to deal at once with certain results. Now we say it with much shame, 
that in no capital city of Europe is there daily and nightly such a shameless display of prostitution as in London. At Paris, at Vienna, at Berlin, as everyone knows, there is plenty of vice. But at least it is not allowed to parade the streets, to tempt the weak, to offend and disgust all rightly thinking persons. If anyone would see the evil of which we speak in its full development, let him pass along the haymarket and its neighborhood at night, when the night-houses and the oyster-shops are open. It is not an easy matter to make your way along without molestation. In Regent Street, in the Strand, in Fleet Street, the same nuisance, but in a less degree, prevails. Now we are well aware that if all the unfortunate creatures who parade these localities were swept away to-morrow, if the night-houses and oyster-shops were closed by the police, we should not have really suppressed immorality. We should, however, have removed the evil from the sight of those who are disgusted and annoyed by its display, and still more, we should have removed it from the sight of those who, probably, had they not been tempted by the sight of these opportunities, would not have fallen. Now, as one practical measure for the discouragement of prostitution, all these night-houses and others might be placed under the surveillance of the police. Licenses for opening them and keeping them open might be given only in the cases of persons who offered some guarantees of their respectability. They might be compelled to close at certain hours. In point of fact, the community could tolerate well-nigh any degree of inconvenience inflicted upon their frequenters. In two other analogous cases, similar evils have been dealt with in this way, and with the happiest results. We speak of gaming-houses and betting-offices. It is quite certain that persons who are firmly resolved to play and to bet will affect their purpose even now, but at least the sum of the evils resulting from these two vices has been greatly diminished since the community has resolved to withdraw from them its recognition. England should not grant her ex-equator to prostitution. This is one thing which might be tried. Another would be to give increased force to clauses which, as we believe, already exist in police acts, by which the police are empowered to stop the solicitation and gathering together of prostitutes in the public streets. In such a case, we must trample down definitions and exceptional cases with an elephant's foot, and go straight for results. The rule in all such cases is to give the power, and to leave it in the discretion of the authorities, only to employ it on the proper occasions. We have ample guarantees nowadays that such discretion cannot be abused. Here, then, are two things which may be done without opening any visionary trenches. The police may be directed to deal with prostitutes as they do with mendicants, and the centers of pollution may be brought under proper regulation. We know well enough that in such a capital as London it is hopeless to expect that vice of this description can be expunged altogether from the catalogue of our national sins, but at least let as many difficulties as possible be thrown in its way. Again, the benevolent persons who have taken it in hand to deal with this monstrous evil assert that the introduction of foreign prostitutes, or, what is still worse, of girls yet uncontaminated, for the purposes of prostitution, might be discouraged much more than it is, perhaps well-nigh totally prevented. Undoubtedly, England does not desire free trade in prostitution. Preventive measures upon this subject are surrounded with difficulties, but that is no reason for despair, but for one additional exertion. 
very numerous and influential meetings have been held upon this subject, and we augur well of their success. There was no display of ultra-Puritanic rigor, no attempt to deal with impossibilities. The speakers in the main contended that the public exhibition of prostitution might be successfully dealt with, even if the vice were beyond their reach. Our streets, at least, can be purged of the public scandal, the disgraceful night-houses may be deprived of their powers of corruption, the keepers of brothels may be brought under the lash of the law, and the importation of foreign prostitutes may be diminished, if not put down altogether, if the public will take the subject up in earnest. Such were the principal points on which the speakers insisted. At least their views deserve a trial. End quote. This plan is calculated to restrict prostitution by placing it under surveillance. It requires no additional licensing system, as every public house, wine shop, or cigar shop in London, whether kept open at day or night, whether of a respectable or immoral class, requires a license under the excise laws. The proposals just quoted urge that the permission to keep these places of entertainment should be limited, and, quote, given only in the cases of persons who offered some guarantees of their respectability, end quote. It will be necessary for the reader to bear in mind that night houses are not houses of prostitution, but merely resorts for prostitutes, as already mentioned, as, in default of this, a natural construction would be that the times proposed to license brothels. The two are as distinct as possible, and it would be as consistent to style some of the fashionable oyster saloons and restaurants of New York houses of ill fame, because abandoned women resort to them, as to class the night houses of London in that catalogue. They are simply places for public refreshment in the neighborhoods of theaters, markets, etc., which are permitted to continue open all night in deference to a supposed public requirement, and though, from the character of their visitants, they cannot be considered schools of morality or decency, yet no prostitution takes place in them. The interests of the proprietors guard against this, as it would immediately cause the licenses to be revoked, and consequently close the place entirely. By placing the resorts of London prostitutes under this restriction, much would be gained, so far as the public decency of the streets and the transit of passengers are concerned but no possible check would be imposed on the ravages of disease. The proposition at the meeting to license the brothels would do this, but, as was anticipated by the speaker, quote, it would be very distasteful to the religious public, end quote, and the act of recognition would be immediately construed as an act of approval, or at least of sanction. That it would not merit the censure must be evident. The only approval or sanction given to the vice would, in fact, consist in saying to the keepers of houses of ill fame, We shall not attempt to close your doors, for we know that would be impossible, but we shall claim the right of entry at any moment to watch your proceedings. It has ever been an unquestioned policy to choose the least of two evils when you must take one, and if the British government should ever license brothels, they will certainly adopt the theory. To the population of London, less danger would inure from this toleration than from the unknown, unwatched courtesans who haunt their streets. Many an apparently respectable man will follow a woman into a house of prostitution when it is conducted quietly and furtively, who would hesitate before he accompanied her into a known and licensed brothel. While many a stranger who may date his physical ruin, and possibly the loss of character and honor, 
from the hour when he entered a private house of prostitution, would be saved many a bitter memory had an official recognition of its true character met him on its threshold, and intimated that it was the resort of the abandoned and vicious. In London, as in New York, we do not believe that illicit sexual intercourse can be carried to any greater extent than it is now, so no danger of an increase of vice need be apprehended there from any measures calculated to remove some of the ulterior and fatal effects of dissipation. In contrast to the public display of immorality in the streets of London is the following description of prostitution in Paris. It is extracted from the foreign correspondence of a New York journal. Quote, Paris, Thursday, May 27, 1858. In a late letter on the subject of the turning-boxes of the foundling hospitals, I spoke of the repugnance of Protestant communities to any official compromise with one sin in order even to destroy a greater. For, that the secret reception of illegitimate children by the state does contribute enormously to the extinction of the crime of infanticide, while it does not generally increase the number of these unfortunate children, is too well shown by statistics to remain longer a question for discussion. But we have another and a more striking example of this repugnance to a collusion with one evil in order to smother out another and a greater in the want of legislation in Protestant countries on the subject of prostitution. For many months, as you know, the municipality officers, the church wardens, and the journals of London have been excited over this very question of prostitution, and no wonder. One need but to leave Paris and fall suddenly in the streets of London at an advanced hour of the evening to comprehend the excitement of its citizens on this subject. To the Frenchman, crossing the Channel is like crossing the River Styx. He falls suddenly into a pandemonium of street disorder and drunken licentiousness for which he is not prepared. He recalls Mary's terrible picture in Nazim and does not find it overdrawn. He sees nothing like this in his own city, and he is surprised beyond measure, for he has been taught to believe in the Puritanism of Protestant countries. When an American or an Englishman, habituated to the revolting night scenes of New York or London, first arrives in Paris, he is astonished at the absolute absence of similar scenes in our streets. He has, perhaps, arrived here with the impression, most foreigners do, that prostitution and revelry and drunken debauchery stalk forth in the day, and render hideous the night. But he forgets that he has arrived in a city where there are laws and a police to execute them, in a city where refinement and the proprieties of life are carried to their extreme perfection, and where such license and debauchery as prevails in English and American cities would be an absolute contradiction to the spirit and habits of the people. The reader will please observe that I do not speak of the morals of the people, but of their ideas of decorum and the proprieties of life of what is due to decency and an ordinary respect for appearances. This extreme attention to appearances is, in fact, one of the principal attractions of a residence in Paris. The city is not only maintained free of inanimate filth, but of animate filth as well. At least, you are not forced to see it if you do not wish to. In London, no lady dare walk out unattended after eight o'clock in the evening and after eleven o'clock she will have her eyes and ears insulted, no matter how well attended, while in Paris she may remain in the streets to any hour of the night, and neither have her eyes offended nor her ears insulted. How is this happy result accomplished? In 1851, 
the official register of the police of Paris showed 4,300 public girls on its books. The number now may be stated at 5,000. These girls and the houses in which they live are subjected to a series of stringent laws which renders them innoxious and inoffensive to the community, the police adopting the principle that since it is impossible to suppress the evil, it should be rendered as inoffensive to the public eye and to the public salubrity as possible. All these houses are obliged to be closed at eleven o'clock precisely. The girls are obliged to remain in the house, and the windows are always covered with blinds, night and day. A few girls are permitted, here and there, to walk up and down in front of their door from seven to eleven o'clock precisely, but it is against the law to accost the passers-by. The houses are visited once a week by a medical and an ordinary inspector, real inspectors, appointed by government, and not humbugging ward politicians. Another class of girls, and much the larger class, are those who frequent the public balls, concerts, and theatres. Girls who live alone in public lodging houses, and who, for the most part, are not enrolled on the police books, nor submitted to the ordinary sanitary regulations. But this class are no more permitted than the rest, either in the street or at their favorite evening resorts, to accost people for the purposes of commerce. The streets and the public balls are full of policemen in citizens' dress, whose business it is to detect such girls as violate the law in regard to addressing people, and to put their names on the police books, thus requiring them to take out a license, and to submit to all the police regulations on the new class to which they have entered. As a girl regards herself as forever lost when her name is once placed on the police book, and as she never knows when an officer's eye may be upon her, she takes good care to violate as rarely as possible this law prohibiting solicitations in public. This class are always elegantly dressed. It is notorious, even, that they are the first to initiate and to propagate those very fashions which make the tour of the world as the latest Paris modes. Many of them are reserved and elegant in their manners, and require a punctiliousness of etiquette which would not be out of place in the most aristocratic saloon. But one of the great aids to the Paris police in the maintenance of public decency in this class is the fact that they do not use strong drinks. A drunken public woman is never seen. As liquor is the greatest debaser of mankind, this one fact strikes out a marked line of distinction between this class here and in England and the United States. The great majority do not lose their self-respect, and they take good care of their health, hoping later on to reform and get married. This is here the rule, whereas in England and the United States they throw themselves away as rapidly as possible. It is thus that the fashionable promenades of Paris, the public balls, and the gardens even, may be frequented by ladies and children at all hours of the evening and night without once seeing any of those offensive movements of public women so common in the streets of English and American cities. Contrast this state of things with that of London. Let the reader, if he has ever lived there, recall to the mind the Strand, the Haymarket, Piccadilly, Leicester Square, and Regent Street, the fashionable business quarters of the city. One hesitates to enter upon a description of such a scene. It refreshes his historical recollections of the decadence of Rome. His name should be Plato to look upon such sights. The streets swarm with drunken and foul-spoken young girls, often mere children, and when I say swarm, I mean that you have to push your way to get through them. 
Is it then strange that the citizens of London should feel scandalized at this state of things, or that its journals or its church wardens should seek to find a remedy for the nuisance? They will think of everything else before they arrive at the simple, effective, and beautifully working Paris system, because they are a Protestant people, and must not compromise with a sin. It must be left to find its own level. Honorable citizens must consent to allow their sons, often their families, to come in contact with these demoralizing, stony-hearted horrors of the streets. They must suffer individually and as a community from the vile tendencies of street prostitution, because they hesitate to legalize it and to give it over to the care of the police. To see the finest evening promenades of a Protestant and Christian city given up exclusively to the unutterable shames and horrors of street prostitution is a problem in the catalogue of inconsistencies which Catholic and infidel France cannot fathom. In France, the law acts on the principle that for a public woman to be seen in the street is an insult to public taste, and hence, when it is necessary for these girls to be conveyed to prison, to the hospital, or to the dispensary of the prefecture of police, they are mounted in closed carriages constructed for the purpose, or when by hazard they are obliged to take a public fiacre, they are required to keep the blinds down. You may say what you please about the surface morality of the French, but their respect for the public eye does honor to their civilization, and their law on this evil would be well adopted elsewhere. There is no truer principle in civil government than that the moral sores of society should be hidden as much as possible from the public view, for it is now too late in the day to combat the maxim long ago put in print by Pope, that vice is propagated by a familiarity with it. The French law may be culpable in permitting masked balls and the keeping of concubines, but these are affairs that belong to the interior, which the public need not see if they do not wish to. The important distinction is that the French law does not compel an honest father of a family, in returning from church or theatre, to push his way through mobs of drunken lewd women who salute his children's ears with language they ought never to hear. In one of its last articles on the general subject of prostitution, the London Times makes some judicious remarks which are completely verified in the same class as Paris. Thus the Times declares the proper method of diminishing the number of these unfortunates, for to think of eradicating the evil is an illusion, is not by missionary efforts directed to them, but rather to their poor parents. For these poor girls were raised in sin, and never made a fall. The same thing holds good here. Ninety-five hundredths of all the public women of Paris are born and raised in filthiness of mind and body. At the age of ten, twelve, and fourteen years, they are already prostitutes and thieves, and when they get their first silk dress, their first fine toilette, earned in their shameful profession, they take a step higher in the scale of morality. For then they cease to steal, they acquire a certain degree of pride in their conduct, they are more respectful and decently behaved. So that, paradoxical as it may seem, the immense majority of the public women of Paris, instead of making a fall, have actually been promoted in the scale of morality. But all these women know nothing else than the life in which they have been raised. They are fit for nothing else. They are incorrigibly averse to all the moral suasion that can be addressed to them, and the real remedy is an enlightenment of the parents of such children, a general improvement in the moral tone of the lowest classes. In fine, if it is an evil which cannot be eradicated, if the children of beggars and rag-pickers and concierge 
will fall into evil doing it is right to protect society at least from the public demonstration of their vile occupation by the passage of effective police laws end of section sixty one recording by ramon escamilla conway arkansas r a m o n e s c a m i l l a dot wordpress dot com